We are in Luke 17, and the section here is verses 1 to 10, but we'll only get through verse 4 today. So let me just read these verses. Luke 17, verses 1 to 4. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. We have here Jesus talking in the first couple of verses about stumbling blocks, the inevitability of stumbling blocks. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come, verse 1. Verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. And here we have another one of Jesus' severe, sobering warnings after the previous chapter where he's talked about the the rich man and Lazarus, and talking about the torments of Hades. This pair of verses here has a parallel in Matthew 18, but it's in a reverse order, as we'll see a little later. Now, as we come to a section, of course, we're just jumping in to this portion. We've been through this larger section the last few months. But we always want to ask ourselves, why is Jesus introducing this here? Is this part of his flow or is this just a, a random assemblage of sayings? If we go back to Matthew 18, as I said, what the parallel is, the flow is easier to follow. Matthew 18, we have verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called the child to himself and sent him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as his child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And then verse 7, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. So these last two verses, 6 and 7, sound familiar from what we just read in Luke 17. But you can follow the flow, I think, easier in Matthew 18. Jesus talks about, or, or the disciples are talking about who's the greatest, and Jesus sets a child in front of them and says, the greatest one is humble like this child. And then he says, receiving a child like this is receiving me, verse 5. But we have these children who follow me. Don't cause them to stumble. Again, a natural progression. Watch out. I have these special, precious little ones that belong to me. Don't cause them to stumble. And then verse 7 talks about the woe to the stumbling blocks. But then we come to Luke, and it seems to come in the middle of nowhere. We have, as I said before, this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, talking about loving money and so forth. And now Jesus starts talking about stumbling blocks and being, it's better if you have your uh, have a millstone hung around your neck and drown, drown in the sea than if you are to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And so commentators 
differ as to what this means. Some say there's no connection at all, or at least it's hard to see a connection. That is, even as an example, he mentions these little ones in verse 2, that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. There's no mention of little ones in this context. So who is Jesus talking about? Again, it seems to come kind of out of nowhere. Another option is that Jesus is moving on to this discussion of stumbling blocks because who has he just been talking about in the previous chapters in a negative sense? The Pharisees, right? Back in verse 14 of chapter 16, he's talking, we have the Pharisees who are lovers of money, listening to all these things and scoffing at him and so forth, and he talks to them uh, previously in verse 15. We have in verse uh, verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them, and so Jesus tells a parable. So we have the this sort of dual audience here. We have those who are following Christ, these disciples of Christ, these listeners of Christ, and then we have the Pharisees. And Jesus alternates his his discussion between the two, the, these two groups. And so now, it may be that in chapter 17, he's saying... I've been talking to these Pharisees, and these Pharisees themselves are stumbling blocks, and don't be like them. So he's warning the disciples not to be stumbling blocks, but he's also addressing perhaps, uh, in addition, the, the Pharisees who are sitting by and listening uh, and grumbling to Jesus. We could think of Matthew twenty-three thirteen. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! Hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. That would be a kind of stumbling block, wouldn't it? Somebody wants to get in the kingdom, and you keep them from going in. And then Matthew twenty-three, fifteen: Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice a much, as much a son of hell as yourselves. So Jesus... Again, could be warning the disciples of the stumbling blocks uh, and that the Pharisees are the prime example of that kind of stumbling block. They they get these proselytes, but the proselytes are even worse than they are because they, they teach them wickedness. Now Jesus here, notice here it says in verse seven, uh, chapter 17, verse 1, he's not start, now starts speaking to his disciples. I mentioned before, he's kind of alternating to the, the disciples, these uh, at the beginning of chapter 15, these tax collectors and sinners. He speaks to the Pharisees, speaks to the disciples, speaks to the Pharisees, disciples. Verse 17, chapter 17, verse 1, he's talking to his disciples once more. And he gives this curse, now in verse 1, against those who cause others to stumble. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. And I read before Matthew 18, verse 7, Jesus says, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. This word woe is fairly common in Jesus' mouth. It's sometimes sympathetic. That is, it's an expression of sorrow. You might remember when the abomination of desolation comes in Mark thirteen seventeen, Jesus says, Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. It's a sympathetic kind of woe. But more often, when Jesus uses this term woe, it's in the context of a curse. Matthew eleven twenty one, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 
And then Matthew twenty three thirteen. I just read this earlier. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And many more woes in Matthew chapter 23. One more woe in the context of cursing. Matthew twenty six twenty four. This is about Judas. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man, again Judas, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So there's a curse. There's the the threat of eternal punishment hanging over those who cause stumbling blocks. The world, Jesus is honest enough to say, is full of stumbling blocks, full of enticements to sin, things that trip you up. This word that's translated stumbling blocks was used of a stick. Any of you as kids, maybe some of you still do it, you, you want, maybe you want to catch a little bunny or something in your yard, and you get a box, and you prop it up with a stick, and then when the animal bumps the stick, the trap falls on them. That's what this word is. It's a stick that, when you trigger it, traps an animal. And so the stumbling block is something that would trap someone, it would, or could trip them up. And it's used in a figurative sense of those temptations that would call, cause somebody to fall into sin. It is inevitable, Jesus says. The world is going to be the world. And there's no surprise there that the world will have these stumbling blocks, as Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 7. In Luke 17, he doesn't use the term woe to the world, but there's, that's the idea. There are stumbling blocks that are going to, going to come. Watch out for them. Woe to him through whom they come. God sees these stumbling blocks and he judges. This is especially true for those who try to cause his beloved people to stumble. And you can understand, as you read the scriptures, the strongest statements are against false teachers, aren't they? The Bible has so many harsh things to say about false teachers because they try to shipwreck the faith of believers and seduce them into great sin. Zechariah 2 verse 8 says of Jerusalem, For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. You might talk about the the pupil or poking you in the eye. Does it feel good if someone pokes you in the eye? No. Uh, Makes you, hurts you, but also makes you angry. You want to fight back, right? Well, that's, in a figurative sense, what what it's like for God. If you touch God's people, it's like poking God in the eye. And God is not going to sit back and just take that sort of abuse of himself and his people. So Jesus has this warning here in verse 1. There will be sinful enticements, but may it never be that I would be the cause. Watch out to yourself. You don't want to be the one who causes someone to stumble and thus receive God's judgment. And just to show here how serious this issue of causing someone to stumble is, he says in verse 2 of Luke 17, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, and that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. And similar again in Matthew 18, 6, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. There's a parallel also in Mark 9, 42. Now in Matthew, it mentions these little ones who believe in me being caused to stumble. And Jesus also says in Matthew 18, 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So we have these children who are the examples of, 
of greatness because of their humility. And you have these children who follow Christ, these little ones who believe in Christ. And when you receive such a child, it's like receiving Jesus himself. And on the other hand, if you lead a young believer in Christ into sin, that demands the severest punishment. Matthew and Mark refer to the punishment of being even worse than having a heavy millstone hung around your neck. Literally, the millstones of a donkey. These, these large millstones some feet across, and you'd have a, a, tied a donkey or a, an ox, and they'd just go in a circle and grind the grain. These things were very heavy because they had to, to grind that grain. And you imagine having one of those hung around your neck and then dropped into the ocean. We see here it's, it's a horrible way to die, having this thing drag you to the bottom of the sea. But it's not more horrible than the punishment due to the one who leads a believer into sin. Now, Jesus here in Luke 17 does not directly describe the punishment to come. It's just worse than having a heavy millstone hung around your neck and dropped into the sea. But we do, in the previous chapter, have a description of the torments of Hades, where we have the, the rich man who is in Hades, and he's in torment, verse 23. Verse 24 says he's in agony in this flame, this rich man in Hades, just a few drops of water that could relieve his pain are denied to him. That's the kind of torment that those who lead Jesus' little ones into sin will face. Now, one more thing about this, this verse, about being a stumbling block. Again, it's the idea of enticing someone to trip and fall, in particular to fall into sin. Some of you have heard the story before, but years ago, I was uh, living in Los Angeles, and I was visiting, or I, was, I was going to a, a Dodgers game in the evening, uh, meeting some friends there, and I had to park way out in the lot, because uh, I was late for, for the game, and the sun was just setting, so it was dark, but at the, on this hill, if, if you've been to Dodger Stadium, it's at sort of this top of this plateau, and there's, you have all, all the lights there, so I have these lights in my eyes, but it's dark, hard to see. And again, I was running a little late, so I decided to, to jog from my car to get to the game more quickly. And as I was hurrying along, I felt this sharp pain across my legs, and then I fell flat on my face. Because they had these chains in the parking lot to, to mark off where you're supposed to drive and park and whatnot. And because of the glare in my eyes and the darkness around me, I didn't see the chain. And so, because I wasn't paying close attention... The combination of bad light and hurry and carelessness literally caused my downfall. This chain was a stumbling block to me. And I'm glad I wasn't hurt worse because I was all by myself in that parking lot. If I'd hurt my head or something, I, who knows, I might not be here today. But in any case, the Lord was gracious, but I did have these nice uh, bruises on my legs as a reminder of how foolish I had been. That's how sin is sometimes, right? You're going along happy as a clam, and before you know it, you're on your face because you weren't paying attention. You weren't being careful with regard to sin that might trip you up. And it's bad enough if you do that to yourself. It's worse if somebody does that to you, spiritually speaking, if someone were to cause one of Jesus' little ones to stumble. It's a horrible sin because someone who causes a believer to stumble is attacking God himself. It's bad enough if you cause one, one to stumble, but to attack God just increases the, the guilt 
God loves his people, and he sent his son to die for them. What do you think he will do to those who touch his loved ones? I mean, you, you parents today, if somebody tried to hurt your child, uh, you know, Mama Grizzly, that kind of thing, someone tries to hurt your child, you, you really want to, to get them. It makes you angry, righteously so. And God is like that. He loves his children, and he will judge those who try to hurt his children. It's better off to die a gruesome death being drowned in the sea by a heavy millstone around your neck than to have God punish you forever for causing one of his little ones to stumble. Now, having heard this warning, let's think about some ways that we can cause someone to stumble. One is, you might call it actively, actively causing someone to stumble. That would be perhaps... Asking someone to lie for you. Anybody ever asked you to lie for them? Enticing somebody to sin. Maybe gossiping. If you're in a, a group of people that are gossiping, you're tempted to gossip yourself, aren't you? If you were with a group of, of let's say, mature believers in Christ, and you're a, a young believer, and they start to gossip, you're tempted to gossip as well. How, how bad is it for a group of supposedly mature believers to entice a younger believer into their sin. We might also think of a young man enticing a young woman into sexual sin, or vice versa, to try and cause them to stumble. Another way we can cause someone to stumble is by our own unkindness. If we are unkind to somebody, it can provoke them into a sinful response. Ephesians 6.4 is an example of how fathers, on this Father's Day, could cause their children to stumble. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Is it right for children to get angry at their parents or other things? No, it's not. What's worse? Parents, fathers, provoking their children to anger. We can also lead... Jesus' little ones into sin, the stumbling block by encouraging them to violate their conscience. Look at Romans 14. Romans 14, and you can see in this passage that there's a reference to stumbling blocks. <clears throat> Romans 14, verse 1, Paul says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Just a little background. There might be some who think that they shouldn't eat meat that was perhaps sacrificed to an idol, so just to avoid that entirely, they will just eat vegetables. And Paul says it doesn't really matter if it's been sacrificed to idols, but if somebody has a weak conscience, they might not want to do that, especially those who have just come out of a pagan environment, and they, they know all the, the rituals, they know the sacrifices, and it just pains them to even think about eating meat that was anywhere close to being sacrificed to an idol. Verse 3, Paul continues, The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who eats, or he who observes a day, observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, 
for he gives thanks to God. And he who does not eat, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. Verse 10, let's skip down a bit. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything is to be unclean, to him it is unclean. If If because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. This contention, this idea of stumbling blocks, for those who may have a weaker faith with regard to what they eat, you don't want to destroy your brother for the sake of these things. You don't want to cause them to stumble. You don't want to hurt them. Otherwise, you're not walking according to love. Verse 19. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. So if there's a situation where you have a disagreement about a particular issue, uh, eating, drinking, as, as an example here in this passage, or keeping a day, as he mentions in verse 5, verse 6, what's more important here? your brother's conscience or you getting your own way? The obvious answer is your brother's conscience. Not that we're bound by their conscience, but for the sake of them, we're we're willing to forego some things you might otherwise be able to enjoy so that they are not caused to stumble. So if I were throwing a party back in this day and I knew my my friend had a tender conscience about meat sacrificed to idols, I would avoid any meat like that for their sake so that they would not be caused to stumble. Because if they're violating their conscience, as Paul says here, whatever's not from faith is sin. Maybe their conscience isn't quite right. Maybe it's not taught properly. But for them to learn to go against their conscience is not healthy for them, and that's a stumbling block for them. Similar situation, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 1, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in this world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords... Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, that is, they're they're new believers in Christ from a pagan background, they eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. 
but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. There's that term again. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will it not will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So Paul, in all these things, what does he see first? His, his liberty or his charity towards his brothers and sisters in Christ who have a weaker conscience? The charity toward his brothers and sisters. He'd rather not eat meat ever again in his whole life if he, if he were even to cause one brother to stumble. So if a brother or sister has a weak conscience, we can try to encourage them, try to bring them biblical truth as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 8. You could teach them these sorts of things, but until their conscience can approve this issue, then you don't want to lead them into a place where they are violating their conscience. So avoid stumbling blocks. Don't put something in somebody's way, in this case, by leading them to violate their own conscience. So we can actively cause them to stumble by leading them into sin, but there's also ways we can cause others to stumble by our example. I think especially of parents in this case. We have to be careful. We think, what example are we setting for our children? What do they see in us? Are we causing them to stumble by our example? As one example could be maybe a father who mistreats his wife. What does he teach his son to do when he mistreats his wife? But that's normal. That's okay. And so when they grow up and they have their own wives, they that well, my dad did this, why can't I? That would cause them to stumble, to, to even sin in the future because of your sins in the past that you taught them by your bad example. Another example is entertainment choices or the words you use. What are you teaching your children by what you watch or what you say? And that's one thing that's terribly important for parents nowadays to, is to protect children from stumbling blocks. Now, we can't avoid everything, but to even set up internet filters or sometimes cancel cable or, or just be careful about the things that you, you allow into your home. It's so important nowadays. There's so much filth out there, so many stumbling blocks. We need to be on the alert for those. So we need to examine ourselves, all of us, and ask, are we in any way encouraging believers to stumble, either actively or by our bad example? And instead of negative examples... We are to point young believers to righteousness. Listen to Hebrews 10.24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So instead of stumbling, or putting stumbling blocks in front of these little ones, how do we encourage them to love and good deeds? On the other hand, we have the ungodly man in Psalm 36.4 who plans wickedness upon his bed. But again, one, one last positive note. First Timothy 4.12. Paul says to Timothy, In speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. So we could unpack all of those over the course of many lessons. But in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, all these ways, how are we an example to those who believe? Not causing a stumbling block. 
Let's move on in Luke 17. And let's look at the necessity of forgiveness. The necessity of forgiveness. We'll see how far we get. Luke 17, verse 3. Jesus says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Jesus says first here, be on your guard, or your margin might say, take heed to yourselves. Look to yourselves. Now, why does he say this here? You might remember that the chapter and verse markings in our Bibles were not inspired. They were added much, much later. And sometimes you have a verse break that's unfortunate. It could be done better. I think, based on my understanding, that this be on your guard fits more with the previous two verses than with verse 3 and 4. But we can explore that a little bit. It kind of depends what this be on your guard means, whether it links with verses 1 and 2 or verses 3 and 4. Is he saying be on your guard about being a stumbling block? Or is he saying be on your guard about... Uh, rebuking and forgiving in verses 3 and 4. You might be saying here, watch out for stumbling blocks and make sure you are not stumbling blocks yourselves. That is, not only must we never cause another to stumble, we must do all we can to keep ourselves from stumbling. Or he might be saying in verse 3, be on your guard against unforgiveness. Now, we can ask ourselves again, why does Jesus start talking about forgiveness here in this passage? Is, are these just a series of unconnected teachings of Jesus, or are they, are they indeed connected? Maybe on the one hand, he's saying, be careful not to lead another into sin, verses 1 and 2. On the other hand, he's saying, be eager to forgive those who sin against you, even those who might cause you to stumble. Maybe somebody caused you to stumble in the past, and you must forgive them. Now, once again, there's a, par- a parallel in Matthew 18. Let's go back to again. I should have told you before to keep a finger in there or, or a piece of paper or something. Matthew 18, a little further down than before, verse 15. Matthew 18, verse 15. Jesus says here, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private, If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That sounds like Luke 17, verse 3. Go down to verse 21. Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. It's similar to what Jesus says in Luke 17, 4 about forgiving seven times. There's also more detail here in verse 23. It's it's a parable of forgiveness. Verse 23, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. 
And he choked, he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And here's the summary here, verse 35, the lesson. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Think God takes forgiveness seriously? He does. Forgiveness of your brothers and sisters in Christ is, is very important. It's, it's key to our relationships with each other. Now, in Matthew 18, Jesus goes into more detail. He talks about the, the four steps of, of discipline, verses 15 to 19, uh, 20, rather. And I won't go into them at this point. If you want to, you can listen to the message online from some years ago. But let's look at some parallels between what Jesus says in Luke 17 and Matthew 18. He says in verse 3 of Luke 17, If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now in this context, I think it's a sin against you that is a sin against ourselves because it talks about us forgiving him. In verse 4, if he sins against you seven times a day. So Jesus mentions sinning against you. I think especially these are the sins against you. So we're not going, you know, wandering around saying after church saying, oh, I see that so-and-so is sinning against him. I'm going to go rebuke him. doesn't mean you never do that, but this is the focus, I think, is the sins against us. Matthew 18, 15, as I read before, says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Uh, important part here is this word brother. This is a fellow believer, or at least a professing believer. This is not how we deal with things outside the church. And it says also, if your brother sins, rebuke him. These sins are not areas of conscience or preference. This needs to be a clear-cut sin. That is, can you name the sin? Can you identify biblically what this sin is that they've committed some examples of these kinds of sins would be false teaching. First Corinthians 5.11, Paul says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even even such a one. So those who are teaching false things in church or those who are immoral, covetous, and so forth, we need to deal with those kinds of sins in the church. The Titus 3.10 and 11 says, Reject a factious man after first and second warning. There's somebody who's trying to divide the body, causing trouble in the community. Knowing such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Second Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Second Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Paul says, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you receive from us. These are people who are are not working as they ought to. Verse 15 says, 
yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So if somebody is not pulling their weight, they're not working diligently, leading an unruly life, we need to admonish them as a brother. And there are other sins as well we could talk about here in the context if somebody sins. But if somebody sins, it says we are to rebuke him. Or in Matthew it says, show him his fault. That is, expose it, bring it to the light. And this is not to gloat over them, to say, oh, I'm more righteous than you, or, or to shame them, to to yell at them, to make them feel bad, necessarily, but to prayerfully, lovingly reason from Scripture. And, again, if possible, to give a chapter and verse and give a biblical name to it. This is not a preference. This is what God's Word says. I'm telling you this for your own good. And notice here, this is not someone else's job. If if someone tells you about a sin, you need to have them address the situation. I've had people come up to me and say, John, you're an elder in the church. I saw somebody do this. Go tell them to stop. I say, that's not my job. You go tell them. If there's a problem with that, then you come talk to me. And I might be able to give them some guidance as to how to approach the situation, but the issue is to deal with it yourself in private and not to make it a cause for the whole church to get behind. That would be later portions of church discipline, if necessary. That's where we have the, the bring the two or three with you and the step two of discipline. But if it's a sin against you, then you need to deal with it yourself. Now, Matthew notes that you are to show him his fault in private. That is, between you and him alone. And it's not Facebook, it's not Twitter, it's not sharing a prayer request. Anybody ever uh, sort of veil gossip in a, in a prayer request? It happens sometimes, unfortunately. Um, as I said before, tell an elder to, to deal with. It's in private as much as possible. And Matthew says, if he listens to you, that is, if he hears what you say and repents, you have won your brother. It's an interesting phrase, you have won your brother. Because we know that when a brother is involved in sin, that's a loss to them and also a loss to the church. And our desire is to win them back. So we, and there's a sense in which we've lost our brother as they sin. When we call them back to repentance, we have won them. And then Jesus says, if he repents, forgive him. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. I should probably stop there. Is that a cliffhanger? We haven't got to repent to, to forgiveness yet, but um, I guess if somebody sins against you, you might have to wait till next week to know exactly what to do about it. You can rebuke him, but then what? Um, I think you get the idea, but we're running a little late now, and I, I don't want to get too far into this and not be able to finish it. So I'm going to make a mark here to stop right in the middle of verse 3. That's That's really hard to do. As much as it might pain you, it pains me more to stop talking. But um, I will do that for now. Any questions or comments so far? Sure. Yeah, I would say if if an unbeliever uh, is sorry towards you, then we can receive that in the, the spirit in which it's offered and say, thank you, I, I love you, I appreciate you saying so, and and forgiving them from your heart. Now, the biggest need, of course, is the gospel. So you might have an opportunity in that case to press the, the needs of, you know, I, I can forgive you myself, but how are you 
standing before God, has, has God forgiven you for your sin? And that would be an opportunity to preach the gospel to them. Yeah, that's a good, very good question. That's when it comes up a lot. You might, if you get a book that's on forgiveness, some will say yes, some will say no. And the, the, the answer to the question depends on what you mean by forgiveness. And there's a, a kind of forgiveness that, that involves me. That is, what is, what is my heart doing? That is, what, what do I feel towards them? How do I act towards them? Am I bitter towards them? Am, am I f- full of rage towards them? Do I hate them? Or, or can I love them, pray for them, no matter what they've done to me? Can I, can I pray that God would forgive them? That's my side of forgiveness. There's also a forgiveness that's relational forgiveness. So when God forgives us, he doesn't say, that's okay, pat us in the head. God's forgiveness reconciles us. It's a reconciling forgiveness. So for my part, all I can do if somebody sins against me is forgive them. I can't necessarily reconcile with them if they don't want to be reconciled. So if they don't repent, if they don't make a step towards me, there's only so much I can really do in that case. So, and I, I, before God, I'm only responsible for my own reactions anyway. So hopefully that's a clear enough answer. For forgiveness in its fullest sense, no. If somebody does not repent, you can't have forgiveness in the fullest sense. But you can do all you can to forgive for your side. Absolutely. And that is interesting that when Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer, the only kind of instruction he gives is we need to forgive as well. You ask God to forgive you, but you're not forgiving your brother or sister. Well, that's going to hinder your relationship. And we'll talk about that more next week. But yeah. That's right. Yeah. In order for you to come before God and ask him for forgiveness, you need to make sure that your heart is not... Yeah, it is. It doesn't make it easy. Yeah, it's easy to say, you know, these are just a few words. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Okay. But they really sinned badly against me. And and just saying forgive is it's easy to roll off the tongue, but it's it's a daily struggle. And you might think, I've forgiven so and so, and then you wake up in the middle of the night and you're angry at them. And they hurt me. And you go repent again. <laughs> you forgive them again. It's it, it's not like it's a a one-time thing where forgiveness turns on and it's it's good forever. Um, that's part of the struggle of this life is to keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. Any other fun comments or questions? All right, well, let's close in prayer. Father, we are thankful for this uh, short taste of the words of Christ in Luke 17 and Matthew 18 and other places. We... We know what it's like to struggle with sin. We even may sadly know what it means to cause someone else to stumble. We are grieved to think of how our sins not only affect ourselves, but may also uh, hurt a, a younger brother or sister in Christ. We pray that you would help us to be on our guard, take heed to ourselves, to be so committed to being an example in, in our word and deed, our love, that we would never cause another one to stumble. We pray that you'd also help us as we live in this world with brothers and sisters, that we are all sinners, we all sin against each other. None of us is perfect this side of heaven. And we need to be rebuked, though it's hard to be rebuked. We pray that you would help us to 
have the grace to rebuke when necessary, but also to receive rebuke when necessary and also to forgive as well. These are all hard things. and These are impossible things, really, without the Spirit of God in us. We pray that you would grant us that grace to do these things. It's something we cannot do for ourselves, but we must do them. You've called us to do it.